Welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet. I am here in the studio with Laurent Landis and the late Patty Fink. And our guest today is Stephen Rains. He is the first poet laureate of West Hollywood. He's a psychotherapist. And coincidence, he wrote the introduction to our board operator, Josh, who is now down in uh, College Station. Uh, he wrote the introduction to his first book. So, Stephen, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, and, and Christopher, right? It, yes, Christopher. Christopher. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, okay. Do you want to? I'll leave the story for later in the show of, about why we call him Josh, but um, <laughs> <laughs> split personality. Right. Um, but uh, Stephen's new book is called The Quilt for David, and it is about a case that happened back in 1989-90 of a dentist in Florida who was accused of infecting his patients with HIV. Um, it's a story that's always bothered me. For those of you here in Dallas who remember him, uh, we had a dentist. His name was Bud Watts. He was the sweetest guy. Uh, died of AIDS in 1995, and I went to him from about 91 to 94 when he retired. Um, Bud did not infect anybody. If anything, he got infected from a patient who, because it's the patient who has the blood. So this is a, a story that has always bothered me. I am so glad you wrote this book. Laurent got a chance to read it also, and he walked into the studio and said, I love this book. Um, what got you interested in it, Stephen? Oh, uh, what got me interested in the story is that I first became aware of the story in the eighth grade. After school, I would watch tabloid television shows. And <laughs> there, there Same here. Because, yeah, right, because in the late 80s, early 90s, for me, growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, in the suburbs, it was my only exposure to gay content. And so they would have these stories about, you know, um, stripper by day, car salesman. Yeah, I'm sorry, car salesman by day, stripper by night. Or, Sounds like know, Patty. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, so you know, that's where I saw gay gay people, and and it was really kind of exciting for me, and it had my attention. It's also the first time I encountered this story where they have this young woman um, on a beach, maybe scenes of her walking on the beach and her talking about getting AIDS from her dentist. And of course, at the time in the eighth grade, I didn't question it. Um, and then years later, I worked in the HIV field for 10 years. I was an HIV test counselor and hadn't thought about it um, until one day a uh, client came in and she was concerned about her dental, you know, she was, you know, she didn't have any sexual risk, but she was concerned about her dentist. And it was only when she left that it reminded me of Kimberly Bergalis, that woman on a, on a current affair who talked of getting HIV from her dentist. And so like most people, when we're curious about something, I just started Googling and 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 that's when I really started doubting, you know, like I, I just really wanted to know, like, what did happen in that dental office? It, for something for the dentist to have infected the patient, he would have had to have cut himself with a drill in, in the patient's mouth. But he was accused of seven uh, infections in his office. 
Yes, there were a total of eight, and um, including Kimberly. So there's there's a total of eight. eight, and you know, so like most people are aware of that HIV is transmitted through semen, through blood, vaginal fluid, breast milk, and those need a window into the body. So if there's a cut or a sore, that's a way for the virus, you know, in those fluids to enter into the body. So dental transmission, it, it seems like a very hard way to become infected. <coughs> One of David's last accusers, a young woman, it looked, it, it sounds as if she actually only had a dental cleaning and might not have even seen the dentist at all. Mm. So you can see why, where there's a, you know, it's, I, I don't think that it was only people who saw dollar signs. I think it, you know, at that heightened time, it, it can be really hard to take personal responsibility or reflect on uh, the things we've done to put ourselves at risk. And I, I think that was a part of what was going on. For instance, that young woman, she had um, a handful of sex partners. I'm not remembering the number offhand. Um, but she had a handful of sex partners, and they were able to track down all of them except one. So wow. it, it is very possible that that one sex partner that they were unable to locate, that maybe that person was HIV positive and infected her. It's and as possible know, like transmission. people didn't live that long with HIV, many of them. Uh, he might have died in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, like David said uh, at the beginning of the show, I love this book. Thank you so much for writing it. Mm -hmm. it. It brought back so many reminders of how far we've come um, with the HIV trajectory in our society. And, um, you know, back in late uh, 80s, early 90s, there were still a lot of unknowns about HIV. So unlike you, had I heard this on television, which I vaguely remember the story, you've probably would have thought, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I guess that dentist probably did. Either um, unknowingly, yeah, it was possible that he infected some of his patients with HIV. But now, looking back, now that we know so much more about it, and if you've ever been at a dentist, and Lord knows I've been at a dentist a lot in my life, at root canals, cleanings, braces, you name it, I've probably had it. <laughs> so where it is very common for you as the patient to bleed, very common, I have never seen or a, a dentist, and I pay attention, um, or dental assistant nick themselves with blood. They have gloves on and everything. Well, so mm -hmm. I'm not, not saying then. it's impossible, but it seems very highly unlikely. You know, it, okay, fine, maybe you infected one, but seven or eight of them? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And... And I think, you know, really what, what this turned into what, for me was really a story about gay scapegoating mm -hmm. and gay villainization. I think that, as, you know, it's still true to some extent today, but at the time, like how hated homosexuals were Absolutely. and how feared people were with HIV and, you know, that that low social status of gay men and especially HIV positive gay men uh, can be preyed upon. And I think in this case it was. And for me it was this, this man who, you know, 
what happened to David could happen to any of us, which is someone points their finger at us and it changes our life and our legacy. Well, especially back in 1989, 18, uh, 1989, 1990. Did I say 1889? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't. <laughs> and, and I spared you the joke, so just keep going. Because <laughs> I like to point out that I'm old. <laughs> yes. Um, in 1989, 1990, we had two types of people who got uh, HIV. Mm -hmm. We had the victims and then the innocent victims. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Kimberly Bergalis came and testified before Congress as an innocent victim. Um, Ryan White, who was a teenager at the time, of course, he was an innocent victim. Right. But if you were gay, you were just a victim of it. Uh, nothing innocent about it. All right. Either it, it, there's two types of victims: either you were gay or you were a drug user. That's it. Well, but yeah. then there were the innocent victims like this yeah, Kimberly yeah. Bergalis. Who, yeah. uh, yes, because, because there were these acceptable, like societal would think of like these acceptable, or acceptable forms of transmission. There was a young woman, I want to say Allison Getz, but I might be getting her name wrong, um, out of New York, who talked about uh, being HIV positive, and she did a lot of great advocacy work. Yet every time she talked about it, it was always stated that it was her first sexual encounter that she had gotten HIV. Um, and so it's like that, that stressing of, no, no, I'm not, I'm not slutty, right? Because there was so much slut shaming mm -hmm. at the time. You know, no, I, I got it the first encounter. You know, Kimberly Bergalis, the first um, person to, the first of David Acker's accusers who came forward and said, I got HIV from my dentist. For her, she really held on to this identity as being a virgin. And oh, wow. in the news, it was picked up, and she kept saying, I'm a virgin. She uh, actually ended up on the cover of People magazine. This was a huge story at the time. 2020, occur I'm sorry, 2020, Inside Edition, A Current Affair, um, 48 Hours, like all these news programs did, did segments on Kimberly's story. <laughs> and she, you know, like you said, like, people believe that she fell into this kind of innocent victim category and, and all the news media uh said the dentist transmitted hiv to his patients not allegedly uh there was no proof there were, right. nobody did a test to even see if it was the same strain of hiv um it, it was just assumed and reported as if it was fact Definitely. And, you know, that, that kind of buffering language that uh, we now hear wasn't used in this situation. And I think part of it was the media being sloppy, journalists being sloppy at that time. Also, Kimberly hired a high-powered attorney to represent her. and She was she like 20, was, wasn't she? Yes, she was very, yeah, she was young. She was a college student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she hired a high-powered attorney. It wasn't just her. It had to have been her parents who were involved in this, too. Yes. Yes. Um, and, yeah, it was, it was the family. Um, so, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, what would you like to say? Oh, I'm just going to so say. I feel like that, that he helped shape the narrative. That attorney was very savvy. Um, he later on sued the state of uh, – to the tobacco industry and won a settlement for the state of Florida. 
he was a very well-known, um, sophisticated attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that really helped shape the narrative of this story as well. So one of the questions I have um, that I didn't exactly get, um, I know you allude to it um, in the book, how exactly did it even get out that this dentist was HIV positive? Like, so when I go to dentist, it's not posted anywhere. And I know you talk about how they tried to get a law passed or something passed where they had to post it on the the dentist door or their office that they were HIV negative. Um, and that didn't go anywhere, thankfully. But so when I go to dentist or, or even just to the doctor, nothing's posted about their medical um, history or mm-hmm. what they have and they don't have. How did they how did it even get out that this dentist was HIV positive? So Kimberly had tested positive and there was a certain acronym, I'm not remembering it now, that um, I think it was NIR, No Identified Risk. I think um, there were certain people who tested positive that were given this kind of not having an identified risk. And so the health department or the CDC would interview them to try to discover what their risk factors were. Mm-hmm. And that's when Kimberly said she was a virgin didn't have sexual contact, hadn't been injecting drugs, didn't have a blood transfusion. And I think that's when the story of maybe our dentist who has retired and is sick, maybe he had HIV and this is how I got it. I think that's where the story came about. So soon David Acker, the dentist, was interviewed by the CDC. So they knew he was sick because he's, the clinic has said that he had cancer initially, right? Yeah. So, you know, the town of Stewart, Jensen Beach, those areas of Florida known as the Treasure Coast that the situation happened in, it's a very conservative town. And so David was a closeted gay man. And he, when he was sick, he told his staff that he had cancer. And then he when selling the business, when selling his practice, um, the the story that was told was that he had cancer. The staff, even some of the staff later on would say that um, they kind of suspected that it was AIDS. Um, and, and so that was kind of a rumor going around town at the time. We need to take a break in a few minutes, but on page nine. Sure. On page nine, there's a poem about George Burgalis, which uh, is her father. Could you read that Mm -hmm. to us? Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. Do I have the right page? About investigators questioning? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Investigators questioned Kimberly's father, asked whether he had touched her. George Bergalis protested. He was being victimized twice. First, the news about Kimberly... Second, their accusations. He said her sickness would have been easier to accept if she had been a slut or a drug user. Maybe one night she met a man. He talked of his travels, bought her drinks, escorted her home. Kissing led to an invitation to come inside. How could she explain that to such a father? He called David a murderer, believed anyone positive who practices medicine was an executioner. And um, 
And, and I would like to maybe read another poem, which is just two pages later. Okay, go ahead. Which is also about George Bergalis. In 1989, George Bergalis attempted to make a dental appointment and was declined. He was told the dentist was in the hospital. To ensure a safe sale of the business, patients were told David had cancer. George directed the Fort Pierce Finance Department and said to his staff, you watch, the guy's probably got AIDS. Yeah, that that was one that stood out for me too, because I thought, okay, so... Was he projecting that he already has some suspicion because the dentist, he, he thought or knew that the dentist was gay? Yeah. And so this is, um, I, I think, one, the reason it was important for me to talk about Kimberly's father was to have a greater understanding of what Kimberly's life was like. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't, you know, this book is not a hit piece at all for any of the people who accused David. Part of it is to, to you know, I have Im- immense empathy for David and what happened to him, but also for his accusers. And part of it is looking at what was Kimberly's life like? What was her environment like? I want to talk a little um, bit about that uh, and what, uh, what steps it was between her just accusing him and testifying before Congress. You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. We're talking to Stephen Raines. His new book is A Quilt for David. And we'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. Hi, I'm Cleve Jones, and you're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. And I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Laurent Landis and the late Patty Fink, and we're talking to Stephen Raines. We were talking about Kimberly Bergalis, and my question was, how did she go from being uh, somebody who had had HIV uh, to testifying before Congress as an innocent victim of HIV? Yes, she... You know, I have an echo, actually. Let me try to adjust. Is that better? Hello? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm not not talking back to myself. That's great. Thank you. (laughs) I have it just a little bit, but Kimberly's lawyer was interested not only in David Acker's malpractice insurance, um, the money from that. They then sued the insurance company who referred the you know Kimberly to the dentist so there was a lot of money to be gained from this they were then also interested in a mandate that would require HIV positive healthcare workers to disclose their status to their patients they believed that this was a uh, a public service that the public were putting themselves in danger by seeing healthcare, HIV positive healthcare workers. And it eventually led to her going to Congress and speaking to Congress. It was a very dramatic scene of her being wheeled into Congress. She said just a few words. She said, I did nothing wrong, yet I'm made to suffer like this. And I think that it, the fine for HIV positive healthcare workers not disclosing would have been $10,000, um, which is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Basically, what she was wanting was 
something that was going to jeopardize the livelihood of healthcare workers. And these are people who would be, even by the public, some of them could be considered by her like the, the innocent victims, like you were saying earlier. Mm -hmm. These are people who became infected by needle sticks, right? Yeah, we had a case and of a doctor here in Fort Worth, and she was infected with HIV because of a needle stick. Uh, she was still able to mm -hmm. practice. Yeah, and and so, you know, later on the Bergalis family in an interview said that um, they only went to a dentist who had it posted that they were HIV negative mm -hmm. and that the Bergalis family would get tested before dental appointments. I don't know if that's something they're still doing. I think that was about seven or eight years after Kimberly's death that mm -hmm. that um, interview was was done. So it's something that they really believed in. It seems uh, very unnecessary and ultimately did not go through. Um, I don't think it would have been in the best interest. You know, it seems like a waste of resources, time and energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and like you said, you know, it's something that would have affected people across the country. Yeah. 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 Uh, Laurent, you. Yeah. Um, you a poem you wanted to read. Yeah. I, I, there's a poem I want to read, but um, I, I want to first say, you know, one of the things I loved about your book is, like I said at the beginning of the show, how it kind of takes you back, how things really were, how far we've come. And one of the things you do in this book that I love is uh, you mentioned uh, ne the now deceased um, um, Jesse Helms, who was, for those who don't know, um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, we, it's it's funny. We we think about how crazy he the political, nice how poli how crazy the political landscape is now. We hear these egregious comments from um, senators. I'm not going to name any, but you can figure them out. And when you look back, or if you were around back during the days of Jesse Helms, he was a he nice guy. Takes the cake. I mean, he was great. A grand poopa, enemy number one of the LGBT community. He was vile. He was vile. He was he a nice guy. He I'll really was. It. Yeah. Really, so, um, I mean, it, it's kind of not funny that the stuff he used to say back then. Um, and you, and so th I thought this poem was just spot on. Um, <laughs> It has been long advised not to beat a dead horse. Senator Jesse Helms ignored the idiom. Stated David and people like him should be horsewhipped. Said long after David was dead. I thought just all that just kind of gave me chills. Um, yeah. How it, again reminding us how Jesse Helms was and how he wouldn't even let it go after this man passed away. Mm, yeah. You know, one of the things that I loved about the book was. This must have been incredibly difficult to research. You're in California. This happened in rural, not rural, but in Florida, not a heavily populated area. How did you find the people that you interviewed to get information for your book? Yeah. Well, I, I traveled to Florida several times to research the book and to go to, you know, I went through courthouse documents. I went through libraries you know, local libraries, press clippings. And eventually I wanted to talk with people who knew David Acker, patients, friends, neighbors. And so I put an ad in the newspaper mm. and I even included my home phone number. And the reason I included my number is that I thought an email address 
just because of some of the age of you know the ages of some people that might be involved not everyone has email and so i was okay with my phone ringing and talking with people directly mm-hmm. and my phone rang often a lot of people you know there were some people who called who they didn't know david personally they weren't patients they weren't scientists and some of them didn't even live in the area at the time but they were calling to give me their opinion anyway mm-hmm. and that's i you know that so you know this era where we have a lot of anti-vaxxers or people who aren't even you know have no scientific background at all giving scientific advice mm-hmm. um it's kind of reminiscent of that of that people who believe that like my opinion is is just as valid as data or science and that isn't the case um but I think that was a digression, sorry, but fortunately, um, I did get phone calls from people who were patients of David's. I eventually talked to friends, people who worked with him, um, and I even was able to talk to one of his sex partners, which is something the CDC, during their investigation, they were never able to locate one. Hmm. Um, but I did talk with a man who had sex with David in a hotel room in Fort Lauderdale, actually. Um. One of the things that I, when I say I really love the format of this book, it seemed like you got lots of snippets of his life and um, Kimberly Bergalis's life. And so it would not have made a good running narrative. But you have a piece about Kimberly on one side of the page and on the other side of the page, a, um, a snippet about something in David's life. And they correlate with each other but you get a, an impression and an impression and, and that that's the beauty of this book it was the perfect way to tell this story that you couldn't possibly have filled in all the details because so many of the people involved in it are gone and they weren't public people so there wasn't anything written about them there was no internet much then it was just getting going I, I guess in 1991 the big thing was AOL uh, yeah. so and, and and not only that your research you only found one documented um, words that he ever even mentioned himself is that, is that correct yeah. I can I, I can read correct. those yeah. this is from uh, the doctor himself um, he wrote these you know when he was in hospice and it said it is with great sorrow and some surprise that I read that I am accused of transmitting the HIV virus. I am a gentleman. I would have never intentionally exposed anyone to this disease. I have cared, I have cared for people all my life, and to infect anyone with this disease would be contrary to everything I have stood for. And those are the only words that he, he ever said about it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and one reason why is uh, he had died actually three days after writing that letter, mm-hmm. and and then the letter was published three days after his death in the newspaper. His family chose to actually pay for that letter to run as an ad. They didn't want it to be excerpt at all. They wanted the letter in its mm-hmm. entirety to be published. Um, those were the only words I encountered directly from him. I reached out to the family, and the family was very nice and kind to me, but they actually um, chose to not um, give any information. 
And you know, you know what's sad, what's sad about the, the letter? It's, this line on here, it says, I would have never intentionally exposed anyone to this disease. So that means that he died thinking he actually probably did transmit it to somebody, but he just didn't intentionally do it. Uh, I didn't get that, that from that. Yeah, no, no, no. I th that wasn't my and and actually it's a full letter, but I'm the one who excerpted it. Okay. Um, that that what that is is that he was aware that there was one accusation because at the time there was only one. Um, when he died, there was only one person who came forward, and that was Kimberly Bergalis, and he wasn't even aware of her identity or any identifying mark, like any identifiers about her. Didn't know her age or gender. This is my understanding of the situation. Just that a patient has come forward. Um, and so that's where that came from. What, yeah, so, so that, that's how I read that line. Gotcha. I don't necessarily read that um, he believed that he transmitted it. He actually, at the very start of, David Acker, like a lot of gay men, you know, was concerned about being positive. And as we know that um, it was like, you know, a lot of cases were in 80, 81. And then I think the first test came out in like 84 or 85. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, gay men were accustomed to kind of living with just this question mark um, or this kind of looming fear that um, do I have it or not? Yeah. One of the signs of it was uh, car KS lesions or Carposi sarcoma lesions, which are it's a purplish lesion. And um, David had one. He found one on his body, and then he traveled <laughs> um, about two hours to Miami to see a doctor there, where he saw the doctor under an alias. He was so concerned about being outed, and definitely didn't want people to know he was HIV positive. Um. And so it was there during that first visit that he talked to the doctor and asked, I'm sorry, it was the second doctor he went to that he asked about practicing as a dentist and how he can ensure not to transmit it to patients. So he was someone who early on was concerned about the well-being of his patients. Well, one thing I thought was very interesting was he started wearing gloves in a dentist's office. Laron, it sounded like you didn't remember ever going to a dentist without gloves. Patty's old. She remembers that. <laughs> but he, I, I beg to differ on the front, the front end part, but I do remember dentists without gloves. Yeah, that was something he started doing and other dentists started doing after him. He also came up with the methods that were used to clean dental instruments. Um, yeah. You, you know, when you Wait, went I'm to a doctor. Threw Patty under the bus right there. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's very, it's normal. Yeah, it's we, totally de rigueur for The David. three of us have been on the air with each other for more than 20 years, so. <laughs> Just to give an indication of their age. Um, but when you went to a doctor and got a, a shot, the needle would then go into an alcohol solution and then be reused on the next patient. Disposable needles came as a result of HIV. I was going to say, yeah, that now they go into a box that has a key on it. Um, Sharps. Yeah. Sharps yeah, container. Yeah. Right, but that's yeah. as a result basically of this case mm -hmm. more than anything. 
Um, so I think it's interesting that he was so careful and came up with the, the way to protect uh, himself or protect his patients from himself. And then he's the one that's accused of, uh, of infecting his patients. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I kept going back to my own dentist, who was the gentlest dentist I have ever had. Uh, th there was no blood. The story of how I even got to him, I had had my wisdom teeth removed. And when I went back a few days later for them to just check them, uh, the dentist said, oh, uh, you know, how's it going? Oh, it looks great. And I said, it really hurts. So I said, well, sometimes it takes two weeks for somebody to heal from uh, uh, wisdom tooth extraction. Two weeks later, I went back to him. He said, oh, it looks great. And I said, it really hurts. And that happened at a month and two months and three or four months later. And finally, people in my office said, would you go to somebody else? Uh, and somebody said, I have the sweetest dentist. He's right over here. Uh, he, for people in Dallas, his office was on Lower Greenville Avenue. Um, and uh, he looked in my mouth and he said, oh, that must hurt. <laughs> and I said, thank you. <laughs> because finally somebody was acknowledging that I was swollen. And he poked around and got some shards out that had been left when uh, during the extraction. I'm not annoyed at the shards. I'm annoyed at the dentist who just, oh, that looks great. You're you're healing just fine. And no, I'm not healing fine. It it hurts. And Bud, who's the dentist who who passed away in 1995, he recognized it and was so gentle, and got the shards right out. And he was wonderful. I miss him to this day. Uh, he was just the sweetest dentist. Every time I thought of David Aker, I thought he, he and Bud must have been two peas from the same pod. Mm -hmm. You know, and I read your book picturing Bud in, in each of these poems. And, and fortunately, Bud did not uh, face the same fate. Nobody accused him of anything because he never would have done anything like that to infect anybody else. But he used gloves, and that was the first time I went to a dentist that used gloves, um, you know, and, and um, must have used these methods to keep his uh, dental tools clean. Um, yeah. I'm so glad that my book is is kind of prompting you to remember your dentist, Bud, and also that you're now talking about him on the radio, and I'm sure that there are people who are listening who knew him maybe socially or as a sure. patient or as a neighbor, and... Also, how terrible for him to be practicing at that time with all of this in the media mm -hmm. that was going on. The story about, you know, the dentist in Florida or the quote-unquote dentist of death. You know that... It, it must... Um, at the time, it didn't occur to me how difficult it must have been for him. But reading your book, I think, oh, how terrible it must have been. And I only say Bud's name... Because when I think of Bud, a smile comes across my face. Um, and I know that anybody who knew him and went to him, a smile had to come across their face, too, just because he, he was just that kind of a sweet guy. So, 
Um, why don't we take our next break? You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with Leron Landis and the late Patty Fink. We're talking to Stephen Raines. His new book is A Quilt for David, and we'll be back right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. Uh, we're talking to Stephen Raines. His new book is called A Quilt for David. It's the story of the dentist in Florida who was accused of spreading HIV. Uh, through his dental practice. Lauren, you wanted to start with there's reading. A, there's another poem I, I want to read, but before I read it, um, th- this made me think of this. You know, I think now, what is there, maybe two or three states that have actually made it a crime for, if it's proven that someone is HIV positive or living with AIDS, transmitted it to somebody else without revealing it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, this, um, this poem... It just reminds me how we're going back, how people living with HIV and AIDS have always been vilified and treated like criminals, maybe not legally, but definitely socially. And, you know, here we are talking about this dentist who was is being referred to as a murderer when it was never even proven that he transmitted it to his patients. Um, and here, here's the poem. Um, Indelible ink on skin declares passionate love, loss, heartbreak. Devotion to one's mother, military service, a penchant for self-decoration. At their worst, tattoos numbered, uh, tattoos numbered Jews, gypsies, and gays. In the Holocaust of AIDS, William F. Buckley Jr. suggested tattooing the infected to serve as a warning like a cautionary tape, road flares, or traffic cones. March 18, 1986, I wonder if David read the New York Times that day sat down with his morning cup of coffee, pulled up the right sleeve of his robe and looked at, the bare, looked at his bare forearm, wondering what, wondering what might one day appear on his freckled skin. I think that's crazy that it was suggested one, at one time that people who had HIV and AIDS be tattooed, be well, marked. Worse was suggested because when HIV really first started spreading in 1984, 1985, it was suggested that all gay people should be quarantined mm. and basically yeah. put in a concentration camp like the Japanese were uh, during World War II. So it's it's really how um, Texas's first openly gay legislator um, in the Texas House, Glenn Maxey, got involved was because of the threat of a quarantine, mm-hmm. and he stepped up and you know, came out on national television um, as a result. Um, but it was it's a it was a big deal. Yeah, it was. Um, and to hear that kind of draconian, barbarian stuff today with regard to COVID and you know so many and, and refugees, it's just it's, it's heartbreaking that the worst of who we are as a human race still surfaces so easily and readily and willingly. Mm-hmm. Um, And there's always been a fear of the other or the outsider. Yep. And, and, you know, that's still present today. Um, The outsider has, you know, evolves and changes over time. But how, you know, certain people are blamed and scapegoated. And when that happens, it can be immensely cruel. Yes. In Absolutely. a couple of places in the book, you compare uh, David the dentist to Typhoid Mary. 
explain the uh, the coincidences that happened. So, you know, this book t- took ten years to research and write for me. <clears throat> and David was born on November 11th, which is actually my birthday as well. And at some point in time, when reading about this, I thought, like, oh, it's it's so much kind of like typhoid Mary and um, or Mary Malone. Where I just thought, what? What really was the situation? I think I think we kind of commonly, you know, like or know the term typhoid Mary, but really, what was Mary's story as well? And so, when reading up on her, you know, her death date is the same day as David's birthday. Um, she died on November 11th, and also this story of just someone who is accused. Right, um, for and and held responsible for something medical. At the time, you know, Mary was practiced. She kept um, working as a cook because there was no other way for her to make money at the time. And since since TB wasn't something she could physically see, it was really hard for her. It, it, I mean, this is my understanding of the history. Is that. It was hard for her to understand that there was actually something she was doing that was putting people at risk. Um, and, you know, it was my way of just kind of making a connection. I, there's also a connection with Gaetan Dugas, who people know as Patient Zero, the famous, you know, popularized in the book and the band played on by mm-hmm. Randy Schultz. Right, he was the... He was the flight attendant, the Air Canada flight exactly, attendant. Yeah, yeah, the French Canadian flight attendant. Who? Um, it's such a great story, but a story that's not necessarily true of the very kind of like sexy man, like traveling from city to city and infecting people wherever he went, um, and and being the person responsible for HIV. And you know, thirty years later, there's now a book by Richard McKay. And there's also a documentary kind of debunking the patient zero mythology. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, in my book, A Quilt for David is coming out 30 years after the accusations that Kimberly made. And I really hope that my book helps kind of correct that record and helps people see that it's really it's kind of more folklore than fact, mm-hmm. what they knew. I, I, I know you, uh, you, you mentioned um, some of the lawsuits against um, Dave, um, David's insurance company and, 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 the, and the, the payouts that they got. Um, did any of, first of all, of the eight accusers, are any of them... Tano in on demand. The last two weeks of this show... Are, are, any, uh, are any of them still uh, around that you know of? Or did all, have yeah, all of them passed? Actually, no, actually, two of them are still living. One is doing HIV education work in Michigan, and the other, um, and and I actually uh, communicated with her, and she was very kind and sent me her archives. Um, I think that the way that she was treated, in comparison to the way that Kimberly was treated by the media, says a lot. You know, she was a woman who did not. She did not create a narrative she was very honest about her risk factors and so she of course didn't fall into that kind of innocent victim category that you had mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. and it's 
it's very telling how the media treated her versus how they treated Kimberly. So I, even the you know just the public sympathy. So I wondered, um, did she or any of them years afterwards, did they recant maybe their uh, their theory that they were infected by this dentist? And, you know, after learning so much more about how HIV is transmitted years later, or did, have they all stuck to their stories and like they still believe that's how they were so uh, infected? The, the woman in the woman in Michigan believes that. Uh, you know, her her hypothesis is that David probably had neuropathy, which is, you know, not feeling his fingertips. And so that maybe when injecting her, he pierced his own finger. The, the youngest woman, uh, she was quite young at the time. She um, hasn't made uh, public comments and uh, now goes by a different name. So I, I don't really know. She, mm-hmm. She's not public at all. Yeah. There was another one uh, that you call the grandmother. I thought she was interesting. Mm-hmm. She had symptoms before she saw David, and yet she's <laughs> one of the ones who got money as a result. Mm-hmm. Yes. And she had a, a blood transfusion during a bowel surgery. She also had an extramarital affair with a single man who lived in Key West. I talked to a independent investigator who said that they always assume that maybe that man in Key West could have been bisexual, you know, being an older man in Key West, not mm-hmm. married. Um, you know, what... <clears throat> and Key West... Actually, how I... Key West is key to this because that's the city that had the highest incidence of HIV per capita of any city in the country. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. A small city, I, but per capita, yeah. highest rate. Yeah, and I, and I think that ultimately, for me, what I wanted to do with this book is I wanted people to rethink and empathize with David Acker. Mm-hmm. And it's someone whose life and legacy has really kind of been erased. He was very ambitious. Um, you know, starting his own practice and also living in secrecy. You know, this is also a story about secrets and how damaging secrets can be. That because he wasn't out and open, there were a lot of gaps that people were able to later fill in in with their own projection Mm -hmm. um, of who David was. And just how secrets hurt all of us. Because, look, secrets also hurt Kimberly Mm-hmm. Right. My opinion of her went from being kind of this person who really thought she uh, contracted HIV that way to somebody who I, I think of her as a conniver now. You know, she mm-hmm. she blamed somebody who was innocent to cover up her own. I guess her family would see it as misdeeds. She had sex with somebody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I don't even like I would. I, I really want to hold everyone in generosity in this. And, and conniving to me has kind of a, you know, I think that everyone was probably doing the best they could at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, just the two poems I've read to you about, you know, that, that give you a little a window into who her father was. Right. Right. Like, how hard is it at that time? You know, this is, 
though I started researching about what, what was going on in that dental office, hopefully what this book ultimately does is talk about what was going on in our country at that time. Yeah. You know, the kind of the pressure that everyone was feeling. Um, it's, it was really a terrible time and just heightened uh, HIV hysteria. And it, I don't think it was easy for, for anyone. Um, and I think, like I said, people took advantage of, of the othering that happened. You know, you mentioned, you know, and I agree with you, just that this book is a really good reflection of what was going on in the country at that time. Um, and part of that was um, when, you know, these gay men passed away from HIV AIDS, there oftentimes their parents had to come in and clean it, th- clean things up, you know, take over their ha- their house, their belongings, et cetera. And a lot of that time, that was with a lot of uh, shame. Um so can you talk a little bit about how this affected Dr. Acer's um, parents? Because it, it also had a tragic ending. Yeah, um, Harriet Acer, David Acker's, I'm sorry, Harriet, <laughs> his last name is spelled A-C-E-R, and it's actually pronounced Acker. Acker, so, okay, so, okay. Yeah, yeah, Acker, yeah, and so <clears throat> you, you got me going on it, but Acker, <laughs> uh, his, his mom, Harriet Acker, um, he disclosed to her uh, after his diagnosis. He came out to her and then said that he was HIV positive. This is when he was having uh, a lot of health issues. And so his mom and stepfather moved to Florida. They moved from Ohio and they moved in with him to, to caregive for him. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were there um they also you know i i ended up interviewing um a hospice nurse who talked about them sitting at his bedside every day um and unfortunately they were not in the room when he died Mm. they had left briefly for i think a meal and when they came back um, he had passed and so they were the ones who even notified the medical staff oh wow so he was alone yeah, and, and which kind I'm of really, which no. kind of really fits in this story somehow in a very sad way. But but you know I, I don't know how long was it months or a year later after his his stepfather. What happened with him? Yeah, his stepfather um, committed suicide. Yeah, and and he, which is you know it. It's a terrible, you know, you can imagine, and I don't fully understand what was going on. It also made me understand why the family was choosing not to talk anymore. It was just such a painful time. Yeah. And the father was really concerned. The mother told the police, this is in the police report, that he had talked about being very concerned about finances, that finances were really stressing him. Hmm. Um, And it's, it's so sad, you know, like I said, like what happened to David Acker could have happened to any of us. Sure. And I think in this time of cancel culture and quick snap judgment, for all of us to really kind of slow down and try to gather as much information and to not forget our humanity. 
you know, to don't lose your humanity when, when we deal with others and we consider others. The book is A Quilt for David. Stephen Raines is the author. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us. We need to take off in a minute, but I told you I'd tell you why we call Christopher Josh. <laughs> okay. Okay, so Chris showed up at our synagogue one day, uh, 15, 20 years ago, something like that, introduces himself. His name is Christopher. Well, that's a very not Jewish name. So we looked at him. We said, no, we can't call you that. We'll call you Josh. And he's been Josh to me ever since. (laughs) When he started doing the board here and Patty and Laurent started calling him Christopher, I was like, Christopher, you still go by that name? I hadn't heard anybody call him by his actual name in years. <laughs> so, so there you have it. So we always had both Josh and Chris in the room, right, in the studio. Yeah, well, if you have a lot of poetry listeners, like he has a great book called Rock, Sweat, Scissors. And I remember, I think there was a poem called The, the Jury in it, but I really like, mm-hmm. he also had Naming the Leper. Naming yes. the Leper is yeah. his recent yeah. book, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, he's such a talented writer, and I love that all of you are connected with him, and just what a small, connected world we're in. Yeah, um, he sent me a text so when he to- saw who our guest was uh, t- uh, today, and uh, told me the story that he had, that you had written the opening to his first book. Stephen, we need to run. Thanks I want so to thank much, you Stephen. so much. Thank you so much. We're going thank out you. with. I appreciate talking with all of you. And we're going out with some music from Lisa Messiah. 